for years and years when I first started Whip Stitch, the primary activity I engaged in wasn't blogging. It was teaching sewing classes. That's how it started out in this tiny little back room that had been a storage room at a design co-op in Atlanta. And the owner of the co-op was looking for ways to... I mean, I guess what she really wanted to do was um, optimize the use of space and was looking for someone to teach classes. And this was back in 2007, I guess, um, before the real estate bubble popped. So most of the designers at this co-op were doing really well. Like their sales were extraordinarily strong. And I would say, I don't have a super clear memory, but there were at least six or eight garment designers uh, doing fashion lines, um, most of whom sewed, constructed their own product, and none of them had any interest of any kind in teaching classes like zero, because they were making money by selling their designs. I was brand new at the co-op and really had never designed for an audience before. I'd never had to think about sewing things for a customer. I'd only thought about sewing things for myself or for my children. So the process of, of like choosing fabric and figuring out what sizes to make and kind of predicting what the particular customers at this co-op were going to want that was going to sell was really challenging for me. I was not great at that task. But I had taught school for almost 10 years. So when she, you know, more or less in, in a co-op meeting said, hey, does anybody want to teach classes? I looked around assuming that everybody would throw their hand in the air and nobody did. And I thought, well, you know, I'll do it. I'll do it. I did not think about it super hard. Um, it was a natural progression for me. I wasn't making money selling the clothes that I was sewing. But I knew that I was good at teaching, so I volunteered to teach sewing, even though I had not taught sewing in the past. Hi, I'm Deborah from Whipstitch, and in this episode of the Whipstitch podcast, we're talking about the three questions you can ask that will reset your sewing, reinvigorate your creativity, and give you a chance to celebrate your wins. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Whip Stitch Podcast is brought to you by the League of Dressmakers. The League of Dressmakers is an online video sewing club complete with a library of 250 plus sewing videos, PDF downloads, exclusive patterns, and community to help you be fearless in your sewing. You can find us at League of Dressmakers. That's L-E-A-G-U-E of Dressmakers.com. And when I designed this class, I designed it as a four-week series, once a week for four weeks, so every month was a new group of students. The space was fairly limited, and so when I put in the furniture and the chairs and kind of thought about where's a comfortable place to sew, like how much space does it take to sew, I could only really fit six people. So the classes were, by definition, pretty small. And I wanted to spend a lot of time relative to how much time we had together, you know, like 
you get four two and a half hour classes that's not oceans of time but if you spend 45 minutes out of a total of 10 hours i mean that's a big chunk and and i knew that i wanted to invest that time in having conversations with my students asking them what their goals were when they were sewing so we actually every single month i would say are you like if this is your point a like today in class is your um, sewing journey point A. What is your ultimate goal? What's your fantasy project? Like, where do you want sewing to take you? And the answers that I got were not that different from one another. And I love that. I, I love that month after month, I would meet new students, mostly women, sometimes men, but mostly women. I would meet these new women and they would come in and they would have such resonating, familiar stories. There was this deep sense of connectedness among the the people in that room, including me, because, you know, a lot of the stories were, um, they would say, well, I, you know, I've never, I've never sewed anything before. Like, here's my machine. It's in the box. And they would put the box on the table and I would say, that's cool. Let's get your machine plugged in. And they would say, well, it plugs in? And I'd say, all right, so that's your point A. Yes, the machine plugs in. Let's start from there. Or we would have women come in and they would say, I've had this machine for years. I learned how to use it in school. I took home ec or my mom taught me to sew or my grandmom taught me to sew and and I'm out. I didn't want to do it anymore. And sort of the theme that would come back around between both of those groups, there was, you would think, well, okay, so people self self-separate into these two different groups. I've never done any sewing of any kind. I didn't even know it was electric. Or I did some sewing before, but I stopped, and that's why I'm back. But there's a really substantial Venn diagram there where the story was, I grew up thinking this is not a thing that I need to do in order to be a complete woman, right? Like that the, the women coming into the room, like me, grew up feeling somewhat stifled by these outdated attitudes toward what constitutes being a a fully formed woman, which is to say, like, learning to sew seemed to be this domestic task that was no longer relevant to our experience as liberated women. So my mom wanted to teach me or my grandmother wanted to teach me or, you know, women in my life, in my sphere, in my home, in my family knew how to sew and I rejected that as part of my identity because, you know, I, I grew up feeling like those domestic things are not things that a career-oriented, modern, forward-thinking woman does. Or, and this is not a different story, this is just the other side of the coin or, I don't know, another point on the spectrum, um, women would say, you know, my mom was that woman. You know, my mother, a lot of them were very close to my age. So my mother was born in 1949, really tail end of that baby boom. Um, I was born in the early 70s. So, well, the mid 70s, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, uh, And they were very close in age to me and would say, you know, my mom was the one who grew up taking home ec or grew up making her own shirtwaist dresses to wear to college or, you know, and then my mom rejected that as part of her identity. So either these women didn't have the opportunity to learn to sew because they rejected the opportunity when presented 
or they didn't have the opportunity to sew because the opportunity was not presented to them by other women in their lives. And the story for both, in both cases was, this is not a thing that a liberated modern woman needs, wants, ought to do. But then a lot of us came to a place where we thought, but I I should be able to do this, right? Like, it can't be that hard, Um, right? Like, it's easy. Anybody can do it. For a number of different reasons. Some of us had babies. And when we had our children, there is a sense of history and connectedness of being part of this unbroken chain of mother to child that goes throughout the millennia. This sense that the things we were gifted, the things that were done for us when we were small, are things we would like to offer our kids. And very often, many of us, and I include myself very strongly in this, many of us realized that some of our memories of places where we felt loved and treasured are memories of handmade things. So a quilt, a baby blanket, an Easter outfit, um, a bonnet, uh, a knitted pair of booties, um, photographs that pop into your head and are so richly laden with memory and emotion that in your mind, in my mind, those photographs I, you know, they're like, they're like Harry Potter photos, right? Like they, they have movement and breath to them, even though they are old snapshots. And it is that, that handmade connectedness that some photographs for me, the memory is not of the moment. The memory is of the feeling I get knowing that someone loved me enough to make this thing for me, this object which isn't really an object. The object is now this feeling. Um, and so students would come through and and tell these amazing stories of, of getting gifts like that and of, of having that feeling. And there isn't, I'm sure, <laughs> there isn't a word for that in English. I'm sure there's a German word for it. There's a German word for everything. Um, but there isn't really an English word for a memory that is a memory of a feeling that comes from a moment when you knew for a fact you were loved and treasured. But very many of us have memories like that associated with handmade items. So here come these students who either don't know how to sew or someone wanted them to learn and they they haven't done it in years and years. And now they have children of their own or grandchildren of their own. And that feeling grabs hold of our hearts and says, Maybe this is a skill that would permit you, position you, provide you with the opportunity to create that feeling for someone else. There's this connectedness there. Um, a, a lot of people would come in and say like, that their goal was not, not necessarily that feeling, that they were motivated by this idea that when you go into the store, very different, very different source of desire to sew, but when they go into a store and they see 
what we've come to call fast fashion, but in 2007 didn't really have a term coined yet. Um, go into the store and you see all the clothes that are available to you. Some people, and and I would probably class myself here because I definitely grew up sale rack, TJ Maxx, like discount. I was raised to not pay full price. That is not a thing you did at our house growing up. Um, so some of us would go into these stores that ultimately we couldn't afford. Stores with higher end clothing, higher end brands, fashion couture, whatever you want to use, whatever word you want to use for it. And it was outside of our reach. Like my taste level was there, but my wallet was not. And sewing offered the opportunity to have that level of aesthetic without the same price tag. Um, There's absolutely an opportunity cost, of course. But because there was a creative reward, that opportunity cost was, well, for me, it was negated. I didn't feel like that was costly. This was a leisure activity for me, as opposed to, you know, I have to make my own clothing. So I, we definitely had a lot of students come through who wanted to meet their taste level at a lower price point. We had other students, and again, overlap between these groups. Um, a lot of women fell into all these categories. Um, we had other students who would walk into a place they could afford and think, you know, should a t-shirt really cost $5? Right? Like, talk about opportunity cost. Here are these garments that are in my budget, right? Like I could sail through, uh, you know, a lower priced store and, you know, boop, 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 fill up my shopping cart, a uh, little retail therapy and walk out and I would have 65 garments and for $300 and they would fall apart. The fabric is poor quality. The construction is poor quality. The, you know, who's making this? Is our children making this? Where is this being made? Is it in a place where there's pollution or there's waste as a result of constructing this garment? Like wh- somebody's paying the cost on this and even though it isn't me. Um, and so they wanted to learn to sew because they wanted to avoid that situation. Like, yes, I can get it cheaply, but should I get it cheaply? Um, so, you know, some of us go into sewing for emotional reasons. Some of us go into sewing for budgetary reasons. Some of us going to sewing for philosophical reasons. Um, and and the, I guess I, w- I would say the fourth group, I don't want to put like a finite, like four out of N. Like, I don't know how many other groups there are, but um, the fourth very distinctive group that pops into my head um, is were women where our bodies did not fit the bodies in the department store. So even if we could afford the high-end clothing, even if we could rationalize or justify fast fashion, um, you put it on and it doesn't make you feel very good. It doesn't fit in all the places. Um, I have always had a larger bust than is average for my frame size. So you go into the store and you put on a garment and it'll fit you at the waist, but it will gape horribly at the bust. Or you know, I also have a fairly rectangular shape. I don't have an itty bitty little waist. I've never had an itty bitty little waist. Um, 
so I would put things on and it would fit perfectly in the bust and it would fit perfectly in the hips and it would be squeezing me around the waist in a way that made me feel so uncomfortable and inhibited that I didn't enjoy the garment anymore. Um, and then you end up like everything you own is stretchy because you don't feel great in other clothing. And we've all heard Tim Gunn tell us, right, it can't be your body. It has to be the clothes. And that, I don't think we appreciate Tim Gunn enough for how revolutionary that statement is. Because so many of us, you go into the store and these are the sizes that are available. And so you think these are the bodies in the world. I think all of us had to be told explicitly these represent someone else's idea of how bodies are shaped. These do not represent bodies, <laughs> size 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14. Those don't represent actual people. They represent an amalgam, right? They represent someone taking a bunch of measurements from somebody who's about the same size and they make this garment. So I had lots and lots of students come in who wanted to learn to sew specifically because they were either hurt or angry that the clothes in the stores didn't fit properly. And maybe, you know, I'm thinking of myself, probably both, right? Like, it does make me feel sad and hurt that you walk in and your body isn't one of these imaginary bodies, but then you start to realize, wait a minute, those are imaginary bodies. Hang on, I'm actually not hurt, I'm mad. Um, there were lots of reasons that people came in and wanted to learn to sew, and that was always their point A. So, so I would always I would start on that very first night, and we would have this conversation about why are you here? What is your point A? What what brings you to sewing today? Um, and I loved those stories. I loved them. And I would follow it up there. I had a second follow-up question, which was, if this is your point A, what's your point B? Right? Like, so I, I wanted to know what motivated you to sign up for a class. Yeah, because that's a sacrifice for anybody. Once a week for two and a half hours times four weeks. I don't know a lot of people who have 10 hours, not including travel time, just laying around waiting to be used. Um pre-pandemic, right? Uh, so I didn't know a lot of people who had nothing to do on a Tuesday night. These people chose. They chose to be here. And on that first night when all of us are getting to know one another, it's a fairly intimate setting. There are only six people in the class plus me in the small room in the back of a co-op that's closed. So the lights are out in the retail section. It's just us in the back with the lights on facing the parking lot, right? It's this very intimate experience. And, and there, there really is an element of vulnerability in sharing that story of what made you sign up for this class and plunk down your money. As, as Whipstitch, as a retail location where these classes were being taught, as that store evolved over time, eventually the classes would sell out months ahead of time. Humble brag, right? I was very, very proud that we did such a good job of growing the curriculum 
this unique original curriculum that I wrote from scratch and used for years. I was very proud of the fact that developing that method of teaching sewing became not just popular, but that really it struck home with a lot of people. And it it gave them this um, this entry point into creativity. And they, people would come back year after year, month after month. It really made me proud. So, so people are like competing, you know, to a certain degree. Like they're having to schedule themselves four or five months in advance to take this class. There had to be a reason that they were in that chair. That was their point A. And then I would say, so if that's your point A, what's your point B? What is it you're hoping to get out of it? Where do you want to be at the end of the class? Right? So if you are listening right now, obviously you came to sewing for a reason. My experience is that remembering that reason can reinvigorate you if you have kind of lost your motives, right? The reason your point A can help re-enliven your sewing. If you have gotten to a place where you feel bogged down or frustrated or confused or angry or discouraged or demotivated or you can't seem to get the, the thread of that creativity back, remembering point A can really, really help. So then I would ask, like, what's your point B? Where do you see yourself as a sewing student at the other end of this class? And I was always super fascinated by the answers I got. Some of them were very specific. I have one student that I've talked about for years. um, And her answer to that was, I live in a high-rise loft apartment in Midtown that has 30-foot ceilings. And one corner of the living room is all windows. So, you know, I don't actually know the dimensions of the room, but if you can picture this loft apartment in a big city, 30-foot ceilings, and it had no drapes. And she said, I went and got a quote for making drapes for these windows. And she said the quote was $35,000 for drapes for these windows. And this woman, I mean deadpan, deadpan said, I'm going to learn to sew to make my own drapes and then you will never see me again. Which was true. She took that class. (laughs) She wanted to learn to sew in a straight line and then we never saw her again. And I mean, if I could see her today, I want to know how that story turned out. I want to know how those drapes turned out. I'm very curious. Um, other other answers to that, you know, what's your point B were, you know, I have a daughter now, or I have a brand new baby, or, you know, like they wanted to make a quilt or a baby blanket or an heirloom of some kind, or they wanted to make their children's clothing. And um, that was a really common answer. Something about becoming a parent really made a lot of students come in and want to learn to sew. They remembered that warm sense of being loved that came from someone sewing for them when they were younger, and they wanted to share that. A lot of people who wanted the satisfaction of um, home decor, they wanted to make pillows for their home. Uh, I do, actually, I do remember one woman came in and said, do you know what throw pillows cost? 
girl, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And she's like, and there's no way they should cost that much, right? Every person around that table was like, you are not wrong. There were a number of people who came in who wanted to um, start a fashion line. They really had a creative vision for what should be available in the marketplace and wanted to learn to sew to create their own fashion line. Um, I had one woman who came in whose daughter had started doing theater with her high school. And she said, we can't get anybody in the costume shop. We can't get anybody to alter or make costumes because nobody knows how to sew. And she says, so I'm taking one for the team. Here I am. But my real favorite question, um, my real favorite question was, if this is your point A and that's your point B, what's your fantasy sewing project? What is the thing that from where you are sitting day one intro to sewing, you know, you just found out your machine plugs in, what would be a sewing project that you have a hard time even imagining that you could make? And the joke I would make every every class was, you know, a life-size replica of the Statue of Liberty, but out of fabric. Um, like, what would you, what would your thing be? And watching people struggle with that question, and I don't say struggle in an unkind way. I mean, watching someone hear a question they didn't expect that asks them to, you know, kind of like dig around inside a little bit is, it felt like an honor. If I felt deeply privileged to be part of that moment, month after month with a new group of students. This, um, this experience of realizing that getting the idea to learn to sew and, and naming, identifying, here's my point A. And then um, verbalizing where I want that to go. Like, what's the point, right? You didn't just come to learn to sew so that you could like check a box, right? Um, you, you came because you had a desire inside you. But not everybody automatically or instinctively verbalizes that desire, where it comes from. So asking what's your point B helped people take that kind of amorphous, like it's, it's in your brain, but it's in the mist, this idea, put it into something concrete, name it, say it out loud, speak it into existence. But then that next step of what's your fantasy project asked people to recognize, not that you've got a fantasy, not, and nobody, nobody ever took me up on the Statue of Liberty thing. How great would that be? No, the purpose was rather to say, now that you have made a concrete statement of your hope for what you're going to get out of this class, there's more. There's more beyond that. That uh, all of us protect ourselves in lots of different ways. Brene Brown taught us that. Um, All of us have a tendency to limit the the goals that we set, the dreams that we dream. And I, I felt this intense sensation of privileged, mm, privileged invitation. I felt honored to sit with students and offer them a peek 
into where sewing could take them that maybe they hadn't considered. To cajole, to encourage, to prod, and say, you know, yes, you want to make baby clothes right on. You should. Yes, you want to make clothes that fit you because you are valuable and your body can't be the problem. Yes, right on. You should. Yes, you want to learn to make a quilt because you remember your grandmother made quilts and that meant a lot to you. Yes, you should definitely do that. Yes, you should be able to make a pillow that you can afford. Nobody should ever have to pay $400 for a throw pillow. It's offensive. Yes, I agree with you. And, right? And there's even more beyond that. I love that goal for you. Your point B, I love that goal for you. And I want even more than you've imagined. It was such a beautiful moment. So I devoted this giant chunk of time out of our 10 hours together, almost an hour we would have this conversation where I would say, let's go around the room and we'll all share these stories together and invite people to be as open or vulnerable or ruminative or um, patient or uncertain. Like it, it really was, it was therapeutic. Um, and I tell stories all the time about exactly how much therapy comes out of sewing. I have a very clear memory, maybe one of the most powerful stories I've ever experienced one-on-one. Um, so I will leave you with this story, something to consider. Um, because sewing is about sewing, but it's hardly ever about sewing. That That's probably the core message behind everything I do at Whipstitch is that all of these things, all these desires, these reasons we want to sew um, are so important, right? Like that emotional connection or um, your economic reasons, your philosophical reasons, your desire to be a better steward, your desire to be uh, a more, a person of integrity, right? Like all these things, they're, these are good, not just great reasons, so they're good reasons to sew. Um, but the sewing is hardly ever about the actual sewing. There's more there. So the most powerful encapsulation I can offer you of that idea is, uh, you know, we were, it was the first night of, of sewing and I sent my students away to, to cut a project um, and given all the instructions, I'd given an overview and everybody walks away to go to the cutting tables and one of the women stays in her chair. Her machine is in front of her on the table, it's plugged in. And her chair is sort of tucked in underneath, but her hands are in her lap under the table, not at the sewing machine. And she's looking down, sort of gazing at her fingers. And I had this moment where I thought, um, okay, I don't know what to do. And I sat down next to her. I pulled up a chair and I said, what's up? What's going on? And she takes a shaky breath in and she says, it's just that I've been trying to get pregnant for three years and I cannot get pregnant. And I need this to not be something else I fail at. She had come into that class with a reason to learn to sew. She had come in there with a picture of where sewing could take her, like what her point B was, what it was she expected to get out of that class. I had challenged and or offered her the opportunity to picture that maybe sewing could be even bigger than that and 
What happened at the machine is what seems to always happen at the machine. She realized that there's something about the act of creating. In particular, there is something about the act of creating at a sewing machine or at a pair of knitting needles that opens up parts of us we had a hard time putting into words. And for her in that moment, she verbalized something that she admitted to me later, she had had a really hard time saying out loud. It gave her an opportunity to feel what she was feeling and give it a name and speak it out loud and kind of work on it. That was such a privilege for me. It was, it was this tremendous honor to be part of that moment in someone's life. And it revolutionized how I thought about teaching sewing, sharing sewing, writing about sewing, doing sewing. So when people say sewing is their therapy, I don't think that's a metaphor. <laughs> I know it's not a metaphor. Sewing is this, uh, this gift, this opportunity to create something that reminds us of, of all the other things in this safe place. When I get mad at what I'm sewing and have to step away, you know, or if I'm really thrilled with what I'm doing, or if I get a chance to just like, oh man, get in the zone and kind of turn off my brain, my brain that never turns off. Um, what a gift. What a gift that is. So all that to say, what is your point A? Because it's not, that's not a negative, right? Your point A is always moving. It is always every day when you sit down at the sewing machine or every time you sit down, every time you sit down at the sewing machine, your point A is in a different spot. And that's, that's a good thing. So when you see you know, maybe you're not having as much fun as you used to have, or maybe you're not as satisfied as you used to be, or maybe you're not creating what you envisioned in the same way. Um, that's a new point A. And asking yourself that question, what's my point A? What's my point B? What's my fantasy sewing project? Those are questions that evolve along with your skills. Asking those again resets your expectations and gives you an opportunity to celebrate your successes. That if my point A used to be, and I'm not making fun of these students because there were a lot of them, here's my machine, it's in the box, I literally just came from the store, and we say, okay, yeah, let's get you plugged in. It plugs in, if that's your point A, it won't be your point A after tonight because you just learned you plug it in, right? So it, that is a success. The next time you walk into class, you know how to turn that machine on and wind a bobbin and thread the needle and sew. Like, you know, that is a new point A for you. So identifying today's point A is an opportunity to celebrate your successes. An opportunity to offer yourself a little compassion maybe and say, this is my A today, but it didn't used to be. So there's always forward movement. Identifying your point B helps you to verbalize the picture that's in your head that maybe is a little bit ephemeral or amorphous that doesn't have a clear form to it. And then talking about your fantasy project 
ultimately is a question of what are the things that get you the most excited? What are the things that make you feel you know, a little tingly inside, right? So um, it's these are exciting questions that help you to reset your expectations and your hopes and your sewing. I would love to hear... I would love to hear some of your answers. Um, I have not taught classes in person in a while. So if you have answers to those questions, will you leave them in a comment on this podcast? I would like to hear where's your point A, where's your point B, and what is your fantasy sewing project? Somebody please take me up on the Statue of Liberty thing. Have fun sewing, everybody. This episode of the Whip Stitch Podcast is brought to you by the League of Dressmakers. The League of Dressmakers is an online video sewing club complete with a library of 250 plus sewing videos, PDF downloads, exclusive patterns, and community to help you be fearless in your sewing. You can find us at League of Dressmakers. That's L-E-A-G-U-E of Dressmakers.com. <laughs>